Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. Jason Roundsville here, joined as always by my co-host, Dylan Ray. And we have with us today, Frank Bennett. Frank, welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Just uh, for folks who, who aren't aware of what, what you've done out there, give us the 30-second the, uh, elevator pitch for Frank Bennett. Well, my elevator pitch is I've been really fortunate um, to travel quite a bit of the world doing some uh, pretty adventurous bow hunts um, over the course of my life. Um, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately when you're younger, you don't have maybe the money, you know, but you have more time. And now as you get older, you don't, you have the money, but you don't have the time. You know, you got to, it's a funny kind of game to play to make real life work with the things that you really love to do. Um, but I've been really fortunate. I've been in New Zealand, Africa, you know, obviously Canada and then all over the, uh, the Midwest and the West and hunting, uh, recently, just more than anything, elk. Um, I've been chasing a lot of elk recently. So that's kind of become my passion lately. Jason, that's how I was introduced to Frank. He sent the Pope and Young page, just this giant bull that he shot. And I'm like, good Lord. And so I went to his page and I'm like, ah, man, he's a stud. We got him uh, on the podcast. Nice. It, it all started with one big elk. That's what you're telling me. Well, I think <laughs> it started with one elk experience. You know, I, it, it's being from the east it's interesting to try to get involved with what western hunting is and the draws because we don't have that here you know i just i want to go hunting i purchase a license and i can go whitetail hunting and that's more or less you know from here basically out to say 
you know, Illinois is where that kind of draw thing happens, but we don't, we're not familiar with that. So I started putting in for draws, uh, you know, at a young age and I never drew anything. And finally got the first one, maybe eight years after my first application, um, it didn't take very long. And I was completely just obsessed and hooked with, um, the whole, uh, Western stock, you know, spot and stock deal like that seemed to fit right into how I'm made up. I've been an athlete my whole life and I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm a good hunter or whatnot. So that allowed me to apply some of my, um, I think innate abilities. Um, and then, you know, I'm just fortunate enough to grow up in an area with some really, really good shooters, um, target shooters in particular around here. So to learn from some of these guys and just being a bow hunter my whole life, those two abilities to spot the spot and stalk and to actually be able to shoot when you get to a position to kill something, you know, when that lines up, it's pretty special. Yes, it is. And especially when they're as big as an elk. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We got a, a huge kill zone, right? But um, man, it seems like an awful lot of them are wounded. So, but um, not for me recently. So I appreciate that. Yeah, that's that's why the practice, constant practice, comes into play. Know your equipment, know your limits, and it's um, it's the thing about archery. It's not how far you can shoot; it's how close you can get. And uh, it's that they're huge, man. You see an elk at sixty yards, and and you think that thing's right there. It's I've seen I, people so many times. Say, oh man, it was 30 yards. I was like, no, man, that was 65. That was the first thing with uh hunting out west was uh the distances that everything seems like it's right on top of you, but yeah. you know, it's 120 yards away. You feel like that, you know, you're yeah. just and it's and it's like that, you know, and it's you have those distance those far shots out there, and you it's a you know, it's a, um, a discipline to continue to move a little bit closer, but, um, yeah. sometimes you're forced to make a shot, which, I mean, if you are an archer and you're, you're practicing, you, you have a comfort level, you know, I, I practice up to you know, 130 yards here all summer long, you know, and pretty much all year long. So for me at 85 yards to 90 yards, I feel like, you know, I'm pretty confident with that shot, you know, if that presents itself, you know, barring you know any crazy things that's you know stuff in the way and so on and so forth but um i you know a couple of years back i did kill uh kill a 342 elk at about 87 yards and that was with a hard shot and that was didn't go 60 yards so you know that's just a, a relative thing to where you feel confident you know and i feel yeah. okay yeah so you just need to be sneakier frank well <laughs> So this year I hadn't gotten close enough to kill one where I can hear him breathing. And I just started to you know, come to the terms with me. I'm not that good of a hunter. Um, so, uh, and then uh, everything seemed to be, my shots are 63 yards, 75 yards, 87 yards, 77 yards. And then finally this year within, within 25 yards, finally. Yeah. But, uh, now just be glad you're not a trad guy. Cause they're 20 and in. I know. And you know what? Some of these guys, I, I was in the wilderness last year with a guy and, um, and, and to each his own, I, you know, to each his own shoot what you shoot, but I've had the smaller one, you know, I've had some little bulls get really close, you know, to the, where they're breathing on you. And that's, you know, goes to say what the type of units that I hunt, the type of animals that I'm wanting to hold out for are, I think, indicative of what that tag is worthy of. Now, you know, as a whitetail hunter, you can't kill a 200-inch whitetail when you hunt in an area that has 110-inch genetics. So 
you'd be a fool to be holding out for that. However, when I draw a tag or, or, you know, you know, if I'm, if I'm buying a landowner permit or something and I'm buying it in a unit where giants exist, well, then you can believe it that I will be hunting my entire time, especially when we find one for that, you know, particular animal. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing how many guys that, that chase them and they're like, ah, didn't, didn't get one. Didn't even draw my bow, but that's, that's just the season. And it's pretty amazing. Honestly, this is, I think elk hunting is one of the most humbling things that I've done. Um, you know, you, you have a level of, um, I'm trying to think of the word here. You have, you have a level of confidence in yourself and your abilities. And then, you know, sometimes it all falls right in there and you're like, Oh, this, I know I was going to do this. And, and sometimes you can hunt. We did, uh, one year was 187 miles, I think, in like 12 days on foot. And I never even drew my bow, you know. But in the same thing, I did, it wasn't a bad trip. It was a fantastic trip. You know, the elk, killing elk is like 5% of that trip for me personally. You know, 95% of it's the adventure. We just do stuff on our backpacks and we walk the whole unit. We don't drive. There's, there's no roads in the units that I hunt in. So um, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty, uh, it's changed my life for, for the better. Um, it's made me stay more active in physicalness, uh, my physical fitness for the entire season, as opposed to just getting ready for a season because, uh, being, I just turned actually 43 today. Um, these are, it's a young man's unit, you know, and, and, you know, yeah. be able to wait a second, Jason. Now we're, we've made it to the point where guys want to spend their birthday with us on the podcast. We've made That's, it, dude. I was, I, we should have had candles day do what i kept postponing the the time so i can get this day oh That's happy what... birthday to you man happy birthday i appreciate it here's the big question do you yeah. ever get do you ever get confused for cameron haynes because you look a lot like him i get i get some of it um i'm not as cool as cameron haynes i guess so i do get some of that um but i was doing me before i knew who cameron haynes was so <laughs> um you know, that's kind of like a cool thing now, it seems like, and in the uh, outdoor industry is to be like this physically fit person. But I mean, it, you know, most of I've been doing this my whole life. And then it just so happens that, you know, I've met Cameron Haynes and, and I have a couple of buddies that are close friends with him and super, super great guy. I think he's fantastic for, um, you know, for archery, for the outdoor industry in particular. He's got a huge platform and a, and a and it seems like a really squared head on his shoulders about things, but yeah, no, I do. I do get that sometimes. Definitely not trying to be that guy, but yeah. I no, I, I meant that as in like, you tuck the hair back, man. You look just like him in the face, man. A couple of different ones. I, you know, I'd like to have some of those, huh? I'd, be, I'd like to hunt the San Carlos, like Cameron. <laughs> Tell us yeah. a little bit about wild adrenaline. Um, so Wild Adrenaline was a company that was started uh, by, by my partner at the time was uh, Bob Peronish. He's a guy from Pennsylvania. He's a design artist and uh, he's a school teacher. Um, and we were doing, uh, we were going to do some, uh, some TV production stuff. And we had a couple of ins in the outdoor industry with some, um, some of the guys over at Outtech. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that marketing company and stuff like that. And um, we had some avenues to get some of our stuff onto TV and to, actually produce shows for a couple of different shows. And we, we did this for, for quite a little bit of time. It's kind of slowed down a little bit. Um, you know, the outdoor industry is, man, that's, it's a, it's a tough gig. You know, it's a, it's a real, um, it's a real, who's your friend kind of industry, you know, and if your friends aren't the friends that are, you know, 
kind of calling the shots, it's really difficult to kind of get your foot in the door there. You know, everyone thinks, you know, and it was, I've been doing this for, I've been in the outdoor industry, some form or the other for the, the past, maybe 15 years. And the first year, you know, you go to ATA, you know, and you're a younger man, you think that the archery industry and outdoors in general is such a huge business and it's all under one roof. And that roof is, you know, whatever, 20,000 square foot building. And it's very, very, very tight knit group of people. And it's hard to crack that egg. Yeah. It's the outdoor industry is huge and small all at the same time. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting. Me and Jason will be talking and, um, I'm not going to say, well, he's, uh, Jason, how do I say this nicely? Uh, I'm not sure. How do you say it nicely? He's of the older generation. <laughs> um, now, Pope and Young, I'm one of the young guys. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, but no, you know, we're talking about guys, and and you know, I'll say I'll say a name, and Jason's like never heard of them. Um, <laughs> and that makes you think it's this this huge industry because I'm like, what do you mean you've never heard of them? And right. then he'll say somebody, I'm like, I've never heard of them. And I'm, he's like, what do you mean, dude? They were around. Oh my gosh. They've been around for, and, and it makes you think it's this ginormous industry, but yet once you get inside of it, like it doesn't take long. I mean, if you start screwing people over, it doesn't take long for people to find out, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I found out, um, you know, unfortunately you find out real quick who the um, snakes are and there's plenty of them, you know, there's, there's plenty of guys in this, in this deal that are, man, they just, they pour that potion on you and you kind of get you going and they just, they're really just manipulating you and using you and what you're, what you're able to do for them. And it's unfortunate. And then, but you know, conversely, I have met just some of my absolute best friends and they come directly through the hunting industry. And it was just related to us forming. Sometimes you meet just the absolute most genuine people. And you, you, I'm sure you guys understand this too, a bow hunting brotherhood with people, with other men, you know, there's something there to be said when you have a hunt with somebody or you have a similar experience with someone, you can really, really relate to them on a different level. I think it's um, pretty special. And those guys seem to tend to hang around for the rest of your life. And I've been fortunate to meet a handful of those kind of guys. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's nothing like, I mean, when you, when you get to share a hunting camp with somebody, like you, you build a relationship that can't be built anywhere else i mean that's and, and people outside the, the hunting community don't understand that but like you know you, you you make these friends um and you build these friends inside the industry and you're you're friends but then if you ever get to go on a hunt with them and share a camp with them then it's like man you're you're the best of friends you know and and some of my best friends my wife's like you only see them twice a year and i'm like i know but those two times we're hunting you know that's different yeah. And that, and that memory lasts, you know, all year long, you could see a guy every day and not have any kind of relations with him. Right. And then on top of that, you get to see what a, you know, what another man is made of, you know, everyone, you know, everyone thinks they are who they are until that moment comes. And when I'm, when we're out West in particular, when I talk about this, I, I've brought some guys out, uh, hunting out there. I've met some other guys out, you know, in the wilderness area. And, um, you get to see what a person's made of out there for sure, because, if you quit, if you're, if you're a little bit weak in your mind, it's over and you watch guys that are pretty tough and they just fall apart. And then you see other guys that will surprise the hell out of you. And really, um, those are the guys for me that I want to be around, you know, the guys that I, my friends that I hunt with out there, a couple of the chapel brothers and stuff from New Mexico area, you know, these guys are just, they go as hard as anybody else will go. And as hard as you can go, they'll go. 
And it, when you have that with another guy and it's like a special bond and we're sleeping on the ground and it's snowing, hailing and raining on us and he's there with you, your buddy's right with you. And he's maybe not with a bow, but you guys are doing it together. And that's something that you can pretty much, you'll take to your grave. You know, that kind of respect is only gained and earned on those mountains for sure. Yeah. See, I, I take for granted. I, I grew up doing that. So like, you know, um, running up the hills, chasing elk, and it's just something that I was pretty fortunate enough to be able to, to do from a young age on. And then I think that something I take for granted on, on the flip side, you know, is, you know, a whitetail camp, you hunt in the mornings, you hunt in the evenings, you're hanging out at camp all day. You're hanging out at night, you know, in a cabin and you're playing cards or grilling out or whatever. And, you know, it's a complete different kind of camaraderie, but you still build that um, inside of a complete different camp. And then those are the types of things I take for granted. And I bring somebody from out West to share a, a whitetail camp with, and they're like, dude, this is the best thing ever. Like, I don't, I never get to play cornhole on the mountain. And I'm like, well, welcome to the Midwest, you know? Um, and, and, and I take those things for granted. And then when I head out West, I'm, I'm, I'm like you, Frank, I, I'm just, you know, in awe of, of, of sharing a tent on the side of a mountain with somebody. And they're like, what do you mean, dude, this is how I live, you know? That's right. I've, uh, so through, through the hunting industry, I was, I was pro staff and I was sponsored for by Easton and Hoyt for about eight years. And, uh, I got fortunate enough to meet some of the, some of the guys and some of the, you know, some guys don't last, you know, the outdoor industry is a, a quick rotation of people in the outdoor industry. So guys are reps for a year, two years, three years, and then they move on to uh, another kind of gig. But I was fortunate enough to meet like a Western hunting legend, this kid, Sean Munson, he was like one of the original um, Hoyt guys on the Hoyt banners. And, you know, he's, he's killed over, you know, three or four different 200 inch, you know, mule deer and stuff out West. And this guy is just, you know, he's everything a Western hunter is. He's six, five, he's lean. He gets up to the Wasatch mountains in Utah and it's special. Well, I brought him here to New Jersey where we hunt people's backyards and <laughs> he, we walked him through one of my friend's houses through the kitchen out across the patio by the pool and put him in a ground blind. And now he's got his pack on, like he's ready to go walk across the country, but like, you know, the kids are playing in the pool and he's like, is this really going to happen like this? Like, you know, yeah, man, this is how it is. It's how it is, you know? And uh, then he texts me 15 minutes later, there's 30 deer out in front of me in the ground blind here. And I think he goes, I bet I got all the deer when I was sitting across the street uh, in another cul-de-sac in another spot. And I said, well, I got 30 of them underneath me. And so to him, that was the coolest thing he'd ever done. He said to his buddies, you've never seen anything like this, you know, because we didn't have to walk 10 miles to go find a deer. You know, yeah. I drove house. I walked you through a house into a ground blind. And, you know, he, you know, each experience is special in its own way. And I think a lot of those camps, like you said, like these whitetail camps and, and, and bear camps and stuff like that are very similar where you're um, you really get to meet some special people. And I think um, hunters in general, I think, have the best at heart when it comes to, um, you know, conservation and, and certain things and, and a lot of great opinions and a lot of like-minded people in the outdoor industry. You guys got some giant bears there in Jersey, don't you? Man, we got oh, man. world bears. record. Yeah. World-class. And one of the guys that's, a uh, our Pope and young measurer here that's in my area, his name's Mark Kroniak. Um, oh Mark, Lord. Yeah. He's <laughs> so Mark, Mark is a good friend of mine. He lives not very far from me and we've, done some bear hunts together some do-it-yourself hunts in quebec and stuff like that but around here like he has killed you know, just some absolute slobs you know like stuff and he's killed multiple six 
fuck bears here in New Jersey. So, pound bears. And then, I, and of course, I think, well, the world record, I think, was like a 900-pound bear. But uh, he was tagged in New Jersey, but he wound up getting killed, I think, in PA. Like, a you know, something in the 900-pound kind of bear. That's a big bear. I don't care yeah, where we, you are. We don't typically have, like, a wintering season here where bears are generally hibernating i think that's one of the huge things here that uh mm. the bear don't really go to bed for earth for a long time here so they get a chance to continue to eat their food is always kind of viable plus these bear live yeah. in people's yards too so they're you know in garbage cans and that kind of stuff but now didn't they didn't well hold on i gotta tell you a story first before i ask you this question so mark actually uh bow hunts in my hometown for whitetails and uh I get a text message from somebody from my church and they're like, Hey dude, you got some issues. I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, this guy come in. Uh, she was, uh, she was waitressing at a restaurant. She said, this guy come in looking for you. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, yeah, this guy said he was in town and, uh, he had some issues with you and he's looking for you. And I'm like, what, what's going on here? Turns out it was Mark just coming into town, stirring up trouble. He is a character like you he's a hoot man very very funny guy and honestly can pretty much get you beat up on a regular basis like you're not his, wrong his mouth doesn't stop and it's like uh man I, i've traveled quite a bit with him and boy you gotta tell him it's like you're on your own here like this somebody starts swinging here you're getting beat up because i'm not jumping in for he's a wise ass he's bad he's just a yeah, funny I tell- I told him, I'm like, man, this is my hometown. Like you, you start yeah. talking, I live in a town of 6,000 people. I'm like, you start telling stuff like that. It'll get around that. I owe you people money and stuff. <laughs> no, uh, what I was going to ask you though, uh, bear seasons were closed down there for a couple of years, weren't they? Yeah, they're closed now. Um, and on state lands here now, the, um, the new, the governor here, this is a, was a big, this is a big ordeal here. Um, so wherever you go to bear hunt, you have to check a bear in here. So it has to go to a checking station. And when you go to those checking stations, the uh, the protesters and stuff that are there, I mean, it's it gets violent. Every every bear that comes in there, they're throwing paint on the tr- on your truck, and and they're it's crazy here. And um, you know, this is this state, unfortunately, is you know, you know, politics aside, but this state is got a lot of liberal policies and it's and it's really run by the cities unfortunately the the people that are outside the cities don't feel the same way but the people that are in the cities you know they just they govern on feelings as opposed to actual statistics yeah Yeah. this past year um the amount of bear on like domestic animal attacks in new jersey is skyrocketed but you know you're not going to hear too much about that but it's you know, it's just the way it is. It's a managing, you have to manage a bear like you have to manage a deer. You know, and it has to be done that way. Otherwise, you're going to have crazy incidences that you know continue to happen here. But um, this state's too liberal to um, to want to understand that. You know, but they do. I think pretty sure they allow private land hunting uh, for bear. But you know, New Jersey to hunt a bear, you know, on private land is pretty difficult. We have a lot of state land up North Jersey where the bear exists here, and um, you know that's where the big ones are. Well, you just that's sit next to the to... swimming pool. Well, yeah, I live in central New Jersey. Yet, I think that there's there's been a handful of bear around here that have been spotted, but not in a huntable population. Yeah, you think the deer are tame. The bear are some of these bear are really like like locals. Like they'll walk in the middle of the sh- <laughs> like people kids school bus and like oh there's you know whatever the name of the bear is walking down the street. 
every day. The same bear. And there's, I know at one time when I uh, spoke with a couple of biologists here, there was, there was a dozen bear in New Jersey that were above 800 pounds and two of them that they had tagged that were over a thousand pounds. God. And so I asked the guy, what does a thousand, you know, what does a thousand pound bear look like? I've, I've killed a handful of bears, you know, in the 400 pound range or whatever in Canada. And he said, it looks like uh, see, see that truck over there. I said, yeah, he goes, that's my Durango. It looks just like that walking down the street, you know? So and this is like in neighborhoods, residential neighborhoods. Yeah. So definitely um, brings a little spice to that. And it's kind of taken off. That kind of hunting has taken off a little bit. You'll see quite a bit of that on the outdoor channel and stuff now where guys are hunting more in people's yards and stuff like that. It's kind of that suburban kind of hunting deal. I watched the TV That's show. The, I wish uh... I could remember the name of it. And it was like, it was only like two seasons, but I think it was in Jersey. Um, and they like hunted in people's backyards. <laughs> yeah that's that's not exactly the the kinetrek ad that you're you're thinking of typically when you think <laughs> of hunting the funny thing is everybody gets dressed up like we were gonna walk across the country so yeah you got all the gear on for sure you know well now, what you, know, is a- you gotta have gotta have the gore-tex if you're within splash distance of the pool <laughs> i would say you know the kid the uh, half gainer in there and splashes all the side of your, you know, your boot or something like that. You don't want to have soggy feet walking eight feet to your pickup truck. So yeah, for sure. And especially if you got to go through the kitchen. Now we're talking. We want to drink. Somebody put out a post. Um, I don't remember who it was. It was one of the Western. It might have been like it might have been Kinetrek or I don't remember. But and they said it was basically how do you pack out your animal? Do you quarter it out in the field? Do you? And uh, I, I commented on there and said, I hunt in the Midwest. I back my truck up to it and load it up and pull out. Right. And honestly, that's like, you know, they have a hard time out West. A lot of guys wanting to hear this stuff, but, you know, the majority of hunters are East, you know, we're East. Like Pennsylvania mm-hmm. has hunters in the United States. And honestly, per square mile, if you grab New Jersey, I'm going to say that we're pretty far up there too, but we get like a bad rap because, you know, we're the city and we're New York and we're this kind of uh, stuff. But, you know, I've been, you know, whacking, you know, briars for my whole life. I've been hunting my whole life. You know, those guys can't tell me they've been hunting harder than I've been hunting my whole life. So, you know, when you go out West, it's something, I don't know if it's something you got to prove or, or, or something on those lines, but those guys don't want to believe any of that stuff exists East, but it, but it does, you know, and that was my pitch to a lot of these companies when I was trying to solicit stuff for sponsors, which, you know, is maybe one of the most degrading uh, things I've ever had to do in my life. But uh, any yeah. case. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. That's all right. Just to tell those guys that, you know, like I'm looking to get your product, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy from the East. You're selling that product to me. Like I'm the guy that doesn't know how to hunt out West. You know, these, you know, we're you know coming out West to us is like going on the, you know, going to the moon. So we're trying to understand it and I can push that product here or whatever, but it was just, it was a tough gig because, you know, Western hunters are Western hunters, you know, and if you know what I mean, then, you know, you always got to do is ask them a lot of them anyway, and they'll tell you. So, yeah. PA has 20.5 hunters per square mile. Everything west of Missouri has between zero to four hunters per square mile. I'd say they call it the Orange Army during um, like gun season when, um, when you were hunting PA and stuff like that. And New Jersey used to, you know, New Jersey's become more populated, obviously, as I've gotten older. But when I was younger, we did the same thing and we were doing a lot of deer drives and, and stuff like that with gangs of guys, like 30, 40 guys in the back of a, you know, back of pickup trucks and lining stuff up and driving deer everywhere and stuff like that. But New Jersey, you know, 
recently and you'll see continue to be continue to be more and more of a bow hunting state because land is at such a high premium here um that jersey has 5.5 bow hunters per square mile yeah you can't you the big jersey the i've killed um i've been fortunate to kill some pretty pretty decent sized whitetail here the my my largest is 161 inch uh whitetail here and i killed that watching a guy have coffee in the morning so and i can see him clear as you know clear as day from my tree stand you know legally of course because you know you have to be i think it's like 150 feet or something like that now is uh from a house but yeah i mean i I watch people come underneath me on horseback and it's it's crazy people walking through parks and you know it's a different kind of hunting you know it's a different thing is that where you have to put your tree stand up just a little bit higher so that you can clear the uh, playground equipment it's guys like this it's guys like this (laughs) they they bag on us yeah you know do it i you know it's kind of like that marine mentality or whatever you have to you know kind of overcome and adapt and you do so all right so i'm not hunting kansas you know every deer in new jersey looks up i mean that's their a part of their dna kansas i've had like some giants just come right at me like i'm waving my hands basically and they don't even bother you but here you know every deer is a little bit more educated it seems like but yeah you have to get out of the way of the vehicles and the pedestrians walking underneath your tree stands i gotta ask uh jason i'm this the article that i'm looking at is from is written by kip adams um you know from nda he's been on the show before yeah um and i gotta ask him what's going on here because on the graph there's only one state that's gray and that's the state i grew up in arkansas and i'm like what does gray mean and i go and it says no data and i'm like what the heck does that mean we're the only state that doesn't have data it's uh, I don't think anybody in Arkansas hunts deer. They're all chasing ducks. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. I thought you were going to crack some redneck joke about how they probably couldn't read the survey or something. I'm just going to leave that. You know, last time I said anything negative at all about Arkansas, I got, you know, phone calls from all over the country. So I'm just going to leave Arkansas alone this Good. Time. Y- you know, it's y'all... the only st- you know it's the only <laughs> state mentioned in the Bible, right? How so? Noah looked out of the Arkansas. And there you have it. Wow. Okay. That was different than the 730 show. That's okay. You're banned from ever saying that again on this program. Okay. I got a good buddy there in Arkansas and that's, he's a duck man. And then now um, I guess pigs and stuff like that. He's been doing hunting a lot of pigs. Yeah. Um, it's, it's bad. It's real yeah, bad. Crazy. And um, he, he's got a nice farm there that he does have, he does have quite a, quite a few white tails he said but the pigs just have run every white tail you know clear off of the properties yeah you know whether it be physically run them off or or just you know forage the you know everything where the deer have nothing to eat there so right that's a problem. starting here in new jersey and the southern new jersey now the pigs are starting to come in so um that remains to be seen how the geniuses that run um our conservatory here can can handle that but you know, I saw an article the other day and I, uh, you know, I've been in this industry a long time. My degrees in wildlife science. And I saw an article that said they might, in order to manage more effectively manage the wild pigs, they may stopping hunting may help the effectiveness of manage. And I'm like, this wow. doesn't make any sense. And the whole article if you read it from a hunter's perspective, the whole article is like, okay, so hunters can have a major impact 
However, we care enough about the resource that we want to perpetuate the resource. So they don't want to take all the pigs out because they want to keep the hunting available. It was just, it was something where it was just. They, wow. It is completely illegal. It's completely illegal if you see a pig in Kansas to shoot it. Um, reason being is because, and it does make a lot of sense. If you see a sonder of 20 pigs and you shoot one, now they're going to split up into two groups of 10. And then if another hunter shoots at them, now that's two groups of five. And then if a hunter shoots over here, it's two groups of five. Well, now you have four different groups of pigs. When you could just call the state, they'll come in and kill all 20 of them with a chopper. And we keep the population gone. Um, and Kansas doesn't have any pigs because they handle it really well. Now, I don't what think if you that, see two pigs and you just shoot them both? There you go. Or you just but, wait and then you call in and have the state pay somebody to do what you could have done. Well, yeah. I think those each one of those situations is unique because like say Kansas might have the resources to do that. And, and in Kansas, I mean, yeah, a helicopter's gonna work, but I guarantee it's not gonna work here. Oh you know, yeah. So no I know right now on the on the in the laws in New Jersey, you're allowed to indiscriminately shoot them because they know the problem that that's going to create here um inevitably because every other state that they're in like that it gets into them so bad um but that being said they 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 have just a way of man they have a way of just mismanaging resources in these states and and some of these real like my state in particular liberal states the way they they do it uh for, for instance in princeton new jersey you know princeton university is right there and stuff like that our that deer population is absurd it's it's more it's probably 10 to 15 to every human that exists in pa and instead of allowing bow hunting which they outlawed and they outlawed hunting in the princeton area um they decided to hire uh like uh, sharpshooters to come in and and these like um you know these eradication companies or whatever and they were they were doing um birth control they were shooting them with darts with birth control and birth control pills and feeders they were doing all this crazy stuff right down to some of the, the most grotesque stuff you can ever imagine where they're netting these things and, and, you know, and, and drilling them out. Like, it's like, you, there's a resource there. People want to hunt these places. People want to bow hunt these right. places. You're going to know in most cases that a bow hunter's even there, you know, like make some money off of this thing. You know, there's, man, we're, you know, we're the largest part of conservation in this country. And these people are just because it doesn't agree with them are unwilling to acknowledge that. And it's pretty sad. Yeah, it's, and you see that it's just like the pig example. It's like, okay, here's, here's a source of a revenue, b outdoor recreation. I mean, there's people buying gas, buying snack. I mean, all the things you do to go on a trip, and then instead of all the good things that come of it, they're spending taxpayer dollars to hire somebody to do what someone else would have paid to do. And that's a, that's the part I have a problem with. And it, it's, it's oftentimes like you mentioned, it's not, it's not the professional management directive. It's the emotional reaction of the public that drives that. I'm waiting for the day um, that we as, as a hunters, you know, as a group of us, because there's an awful lot of us, we become proactive in this fight. It seems that our voice is never heard, um, and we're the largest contributors to conservation in this country. So why is it that that we're not out there yelling? We're always seem to be, and it's I don't know if it's a conservative thing or not, but we're always the ones on defense. 
It's always us trying to defend our whale instead of being proactive in it and saying like, no, we, we have a buying power here. Like you, these activist groups can't compete with us because in the, in the long run, it's money and money is what does it. So we are here to say that we're spending $7 billion a year in, in an industry. So we have a big voice here, but we just don't ever use it. We don't ever wield that stick. And, it, and it's unfortunate. And there has to be, and that's what I said, we got talking about campaigns and stuff like that. I love seeing guys like that. You know, people, they got a lot of people that hate on that stuff and, you know, hate on these guys and, you know, maybe it's jealousy or whatever it is, but man, I don't have any jealousy for that guy. I think that guy's great. I think he's in a perfect position and he speaks the way I want to speak. And he says the things I want to say because he has a platform to do it. And I think we need more people doing that as opposed to, you know, we get an awful lot of bickering because as a hunting group, it seems like, you know, guys are very matter of fact, my way is the right way and your way is the wrong way kind of deal, as opposed to saying, we're all doing the same thing. It can be done a thousand different ways and your way might be right. And so my way also, but you know, in the end, we're all kind of governed for the same thing here. And um, it just seems like I said, like the bear hunt got kicked out in New Jersey. Well, I can tell you this, there's probably a hundred times more hunters than there are activists in New Jersey fighting against the bear, but somehow the bear, they got they got outed in new jersey so how did that happen we let that happen i let well, that it's, happen. Be, it's because you know we have i think a lot of hunters just they believe in the right thing and they're like oh well you know what they're making a lot of noise over there but these people have to be smart enough to realize that controlling the bear population is a good thing and they don't the people you're talking to they don't care it has nothing to do with facts figures science or anything else it is a knee-jerk gut reaction to how it makes them feel and that is the difference is we keep hoping that people will wake up and look at this and say hey this this doesn't make any sense that we're going to pay somebody to do something what they'd have done what they would have paid to do but it just doesn't it doesn't register they're never going to to understand the way we think you know, we had this conversation, Frank, with with Hal for Wildlife a few episodes back, and that was his exact point was, you know, he hopes that one day not only will we not always have to be on the defense, but eventually we can be on the offense. And, and, and we can take it to them saying, hey, look, these bears in New Jersey, they're running out of their natural food sources. That's why they're eating your puppies. Um, they're running out of natural food sources. That's why they're they're digging in your garbage and that's why they're in your neighborhoods because there's no food out in the in the wilderness for them where he's hoping and we as hunters should be hoping that one day we won't always have to be on the back pedal but eventually we can be the ones pushing forward um but we've got a lot of ground to make up i think yeah we we have a we have a lot of ground to make up and i think that it, it takes um some people like uh we're we're kind of we used to be fortunate in this area we had a guy like like you know donald trump jr and I've had been fortunate to meet him a handful of times at um, the great uh, the Western Hunting Expo out in uh, Utah every year that I go to and stuff. And these guys, like, you know, in this area, there's a, I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like Campfire or any of these other places, but I mean, that's where the National Forestry Service was 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 written for the United States, and like conservation was written right there. You know, it was written by Theodore Roosevelt and it was written by um, Abercrombie and Fitch. You know, they're not a clothing company. They were an actual outfitter in the United States. And they wrote our forestry services is written right in this area where I live, you know, just just north of me here. And there's so there's some prominent people here. But for some reason, 
we just we just don't have a voice here and it's you know it's unfortunate it's it's a it's a liberal controlled area and their beliefs are not our beliefs and you know i'm i'm honestly recently i've been coming to the fact that they're never going to believe what we believe they're never going to that's never going to change you know it's never going to be uh a thing with uh allowing people to live their lives they're always going to want to impose themselves in your life and that's and that's the way it is so in order to deal with that you're we're going to have to stand up for ourselves one day i mean that's just what it comes down to stand up for our own beliefs and then start putting people in positions and elected officials in positions that believe the things we believe you know because if i mean you just have to take a couple animals in this country for example you know, if, if you're a turkey hunter or if you're an elk hunter or, you know, now even a sheep hunter now, conservation has saved these animals, okay? Hunting has saved these animals. And the, the amount of animals, you know, prior to the conservation acts to now is, is tripled tenfold on most of these animals. Out west, it, it'd be hard to find an elk, you know, 20 years, 30 years ago. Even, even in New Jersey, my grandfather, they, they would talk about even seeing a deer here. And, and like when you got one, this was like, you know, you're talking like straight up like redneck, like Fred Bear time kind of crazy stuff. They'd strap that thing to the hood of their truck and drive it around town for a week. And it was the coolest thing that everyone's like, oh, wow, you know, Arkansas. Yeah. Dan Bennett got a deer this year. And people are like, holy cow, I don't even know the deer live here to now. Like anytime during the day in my yard, I can have 15 or 20 deer. You know, they're they're like, uh, you know, like an invasion now. But that's it that is a product of conservation. You know, that is a product of putting a value on something so that people will see it, not just as a pest or something and just shoot it, you know, sporadically to saying, okay, this thing has value to it. Every year there's a hunting license and, and there's gear and there's things that can go along to making this animal worth just more than, you know, shooting him and leaving it on the side of the road kind of thing, you know? And as a prime example of that, when I go to Africa, um, those animals, you know, like you look at a rhino or something like that, where they have invested money in hunting, elephants in particular, in Botswana, those kind of places where I go, those those animals aren't shot anymore indiscriminately. You know, they're they're kept by the villagers because they know there's mm -hmm. a very value to that animal. And they won't just get rid of it for nothing. It's worth something to them. And until we do that here, you know, this is just policy that they're gonna have is they're gonna shoot these, you're gonna shoot whatever they can or they're gonna and they're not going to let you do it because that's something that we enjoy. They're going to they're going to pay somebody else to do it in a way that they think is it's going to happen. I mean, it's got to be one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of birth control for deer as a as a as a population control. When you can have a guy that'll pay forty five dollars for a license and he'll shoot five or six yeah. of, you know, so and I was in Botswana during the closure and it was amazing. Like people are like, oh, save the elephants. And the, the people that say that have absolutely no idea what saving the elephants and, and the detrimental effects that has all over entire countries of Africa, Botswana, there were, there were villages you drive by and he's like, man, this used to be a village, but when they shut down elephant hunting, there's nothing here for the people. So they left, there is no longer even a village there and they don't, people don't have an understanding that it's bigger than than one elephant and you know elephants not on my bucket list but the ability to whether it's elephants or deer or whatever it happens to be like you say it, it provides a value and man nobody's poaching elephants in those areas because 
the the village won't allow it. Right. I mean, you if you do, you'd be ostracized. And because right. they need they need the meat, they need the jobs, they need the income, they need that sustainability for their whole village. I think we need to do, and that's a part of it. I think we need to do a, a better way of letting people understand what it is that a hunter does, you know, what it is that we contribute aside from just the killing part of it is, you know, like you say, like the, the village gets the meat, you know, the village gets the money. That money doesn't go to the outfitter, all of it, that, that outfitter is paying those villagers and, and, and employees part, you know, partly employees, yeah. some of them, you know, real quick story about that. I went to Africa the first year was just after uh, that dentist shot the, uh, the lion or whatnot uh, outside of Kruger, I think Kruger national park there. And so I went and I, I asked the guy, you know, like, what do you think about this Cecil, you know, lion or whatever? And, you know, his response to me, like, you know, who the hell is Cecil? I was like, well, this this lion, you know, this special lion that was in the. He said, yeah, no, that's that's he goes, that's an American story. That's not a story. Right. But right. we've we've made every animal into Disney here. And it's, you know, you know unfortunately it's it's a surprise to the left i think when they see that that's you know every animal's not disney you know that's not how that works you know but um yeah it was it's, i think the united states in general around the world makes these stories up to believe get behind these special interest groups and it's like you know it doesn't exist like that everywhere else you know the yeah. american internationally in hunting employs a lot of people and my yeah. i've South Africa that are really hurting right now because of, you know, the restrictions and stuff with COVID and so on and so forth. But even prior to that, with, you know, exporting cats and stuff like that out of South Africa, it really destroys the livelihood of these places, you know, and, and that's about governing off of feelings and not um, facts. And that's unfortunate because it's it's happening an awful lot. You can even look at Canada and see that with, you know, the border closings, we've got a lot of outfitter friends who are, who are really struggling. And, and what happens if we do take away hunting for good? I mean, they're just, they're just done. I mean, and, and people don't understand that it's just lost on them. No, people don't care. No, yeah. they don't. Like I've had some great friends. Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with like the Bolin Lewis guys. Yeah. Yep. Alan Bolin. Yep. So I was going, um, I was going on a mountain goat hunt. Uh, with those guys, a, a flying camp and stuff like that, like, you know, one of like these dream hunts of mine. And the week before that I was going to take off is like, you know, COVID kind of hit and all these restrictions and stuff like that. And like, you know, like, like Spike and those guys, like, you know, this is a really solid business. It's a solid company with, you know, some, some of the best, you know, mountain goat land, you know, in, in the world really. And, um, you know, they lasted, I think a half a season after, that and they said that's it we're done they can just see the politics in canada where it was going and out you know they they and that's a company that was strong you know they were as good as it gets when it comes to those mountain hunts like that and they had enough so what that does to those places you know to these people it's just i i know it's it's just cannot be on accident it has to be done um with some kind of purpose i think it's 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 unfortunate yeah and we keep seeing more of it. That's that's why we added preserve, promote, and protect to our our pillars. So protection is something that that we believe in, and you know we've been the voice for bow hunting in North America for sixty years, and you know we will continue to do that with the refocus. So expect to see us there. You know one of the things, Frank, that uh, 
the one question we ask on every show. Dylan, you want to ask this or should I? I say you ask it, but then I'm going to reword it. I have a, a better idea. But but ask our original well, you go question. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'd like to hear the re, the reworded version. Okay. So when you're headed out your back door to go sit in a blind behind your swimming pool, what's right. one non-traditional hunting item, not a knife or binoculars or a rangefinder, what's one non-traditional hunting item you always have with you? Sounds uh, like sunscreen, maybe. <laughs> or flip-flops. Flip-flops. Uh, no, in New Jersey, it would be more like body oil. It would be like a... Uh, uh, snooky. Yeah, like baby oil kind of thing here. A lot of people around. So, um, no, I think... Um, I wouldn't say it's non-traditional, but it's um, something really, really special to me that, you know, just has to do with... Uh, I lost a great friend when I was younger. He was uh, he was a young man. He was 38 years old. I was 30. He was my best friend, and he died of cancer. And he was uh, he was a huge bow hunter. And uh, him and I got to spend uh, a lot of time together bow hunting, and that was just kind of how our relationship started, or whatever. So I made a point to uh, always carry his picture with me, uh, and a picture of the two of us always together wherever I'm at. And um, when I'm on these trips and stuff like that, I pull the picture out this year, pull the picture out right around my elk and show my friend that, uh, Hey man, like I'm, uh, I'm doing it and, uh, you're with me, you know, Very not just, cool. that's awesome. Yeah. There's you a know, little inspiration for how you get to the next peak. You're like, man, I'm tired, but you know, I can't let him down. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, uh, honestly, he, uh, yeah, he lost, he fought really hard. You know, he lost, he lost his leg. He took his leg with the cancer and stuff like that started as a tumor in his leg. And so, some of these hunts he, you know, had dreamed about that he'd never be able to get on. And, um, you know, I, I give a lot of, uh, credit to, to these guys that, that do that stuff and, um, that, that give their time to just like a, like a wounded warriors and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. these guys may never, ever experience some of the things I get a, I get the opportunity to experience. So when I'm, you know, when you're feeling tired, you're feeling this, you know, you look for some motivation and you just look to maybe how fortunate you really are. And, you know, things really aren't that bad and, and things could be a whole lot worse. Obviously are on the side of a mountain hunting an elk, so it can't be that bad. But um, as any kind of motivation to go up the next mountain, uh, you know, bringing my buddy along with me for sure is um, a huge part of that. Very cool. Well, Dylan, add that one to the list. I certainly will. And then maybe we should put on sunscreen just for good measure. <laughs> I, you know, well, I got a lot of buddies with lip balm. Lip balm. But, seems there you go. Like like the thing you know and um i didn't really think it was important until i started hunting out west and you get dried out so quick uh going up the you know there's the air is just so you know, not, the humidity is just doesn't exist there so that uh yeah. moisture sucked out of your lips and by the end of it you just all cracked up and you look, look, look terrible yeah yeah there's some places it's i mean you guys for you it's out west for me it's back east but yeah there's some places utah nevada where it's uh man it's dry and if you're not used to it boy you just hands crack and nosebleeds and lips crack i everything. learned about the dryness of of the reno of nevada when we were there for yeah. a convention we uh frank we had a like a meet and greet for all of our people that were there at convention and i get a nosebleed everything was just so dry my sinuses are just so dry i get a nosebleed i go to the bathroom and i'm taking care of this nosebleed and in rocks walks Remy Warren and he's like, dude, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good, man. You know, no problem. And, uh, and then in walks Alan Bowl and he's like, dude, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, man, no problem. 
And then in walks a couple of our corporate partners and they're like, dude, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, no problem. And I'm like, nobody else could walk in this bathroom. Like everybody has walked in at the time. My nose is pouring blood. And then Michael Waddell walks in and, and he's like, dude, are you okay? I'm like, good Lord. Everybody and their cousins walking in the bathroom right now when I'm pouring blood. And of course, Michael, he's so funny. He's like, Hey dude, you know what you got to do? You got to tilt your head back, twist your wrist a little bit, hold your pinky this way, quit bleeding immediately. And I'm like, yo, <laughs> whatever, Michael. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, I tell you, it's it's a definite. Um, I've learned for me personally, it's taken a couple years, a couple trips out there to figure it out, and then now I kind of have a system of how I go about hunting out there. I don't, I, I live at sea level here, you know, and and we're hunting out up to almost eleven thousand feet in some spots. So you know, and I've hunted Utah, I've hunted the Southwest Desert of Utah, and you know, it's a huge environmental change for me. Yeah. So I have to. I have to plan accordingly. And like, I now I know like it takes me four days to get my lungs right. You know, it takes me, you know, that about those four days and get my water right. Cause the first couple of days out there, I'm drinking uh, three liters of water every day and I just can't get enough water, you know, in me until, you know, after the fourth day. And then all of a sudden my body kind of figures it out. But I, I get, I mean, my whole life is devoted to being the best I can be for, you know, that, couple month period that i'm out there honestly i mean that's you know people have hobbies and i guess you know they can call this a hobby but this is a way of life for me you know yeah i, I drink beer and i hang out and stuff like that but four months prior to me going out west i don't drink anymore you know i get my life devoted to that like that is what i want to do the most i want to kill giant elk and mule deer and things like that out there and to be the best that you can be that's how i feel like i have to be you know, and you don't have to be that. Some guys can walk right out of the truck and they shoot giant. I mean, the way it goes, and you know how that you know how that usually usually a young kid that's never hunted before. But um, for me, I feel like to get the best out of myself, um, there's a small window of opportunity, and you know, in my life that I can be physically capable enough to handle some of the stuff. And I think I'm in that middle of that right now, and. Like you said, to handle that stuff out west is is difficult, especially when you're not living there. So you have to kind of plan accordingly. I mean, I've gone like I do infusions and stuff here now, like like uh, mineral, like vitamin infusion stuff before, like two weeks before I head out and start getting a couple of those to try to get more hydrated because I know like mm-hmm. you know you go up the first day and you just start cramping like crazy, and it's it's just the moisture being sucked right out of you. It's it's pretty it's pretty wild actually. It's fascinating. That's uh it's definitely a different world up there. Well, Frank, uh, we appreciate you submitting your pictures to Pope and young. We like to, to post them and get them up. Uh, appreciate you spending some time with us today and, and can't wait to hear about your next adventure up on the mountain. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. I really do. Um, you know, everyone around here, you know, like you said, the guy and these clowns here, but, um, yeah, we'll know, work to find you a new measure. Well, yeah. we'll get to- I we had to re- we had to remeasure this up four times this year because I keep you know, I think he's getting old and <laughs> and um but uh no he he's a he's a good person and and the Pope and Young uh you know organization in general what it does for for hunting is pretty special and it's been a staple of a lot of people's lives even you know indirectly they don't you know they don't understand when they say oh that that deer scored one forty whatever they don't know what they're saying but that's a Pope and Young score. That's yeah. a that's a staple of what an animal is, you know, and and that's so ingrained in people, which I think is is, is amazing. And I think um, 
it, it's really good to have people like yourselves um, out there speaking for us, you know, and speaking to us. So I appreciate your time and I, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks, Frank. We're going to continue to be the voice for America's bow hunters and hope we're, hope we're out there doing you proud. Well, I appreciate it guys. Thank you. All right, have a great day. All right. Later.